this farm-raised, grass-fed It's on the record and off the wall Cold-pressed, unstressed Non-GMO, no cholesterol Organic and cage-free Certainly not PC We share the backstory and that ain't all It's always on the record Sometimes off the wall Hi everybody, Buzz Fleischman here. This is On the Record and Off the Wall, a Jolt Radio interview show. Today, we're with a, a, a comedian, so I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to laugh here today. I, I, you know, he says he's a comedian. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever seen him live. But but uh, Gene Marola, has anyone heard of Gene Marola around here? Hi, Gene. How are you? Very fine, Buzz, and uh, happy holidays uh, after the after the fact to you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we had a really good time. We're just skating uh, to the beginning of the year here, um, just uh, ready to see what it has for us. I, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, of course, 2020 has not been great for a lot of people. How is your 2020? Well, I'm looking forward to uh, 2021, so that year will be able to drink. <laughs> that, that's that totally something I was concerned about. And before I get to that serious question, if yeah. you don't mind, how long has your show been uh, alive and well? Al- well, alive for five years and well I for think- maybe a year and a half of that. And that is fantastic. I'm very <laughs> proud and very happy for you. And you've had a lot of people on in those five years, I'm sure. And now you're billing me as an institution of comedy here in South Florida. And it's taken you five years to get me on your show. I know. Well, you know, I've, I've been in an institution as well, and I know what that's like. And you're out now, right? You're out. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. I, 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 so I figured that this would kind of be a little, little party, a little coming out party uh, for you. Uh, yes. Well, you know, I, I, my, whole, my whole career has been uh, geared around doing self-defecating jokes. So um, <laughs> I'm all about that. Well, I'm glad you're calling it a career. Is that what other people call it? Oh, see, this is where you're going to go with this. Okay. I, I don't, I, well, come on, here we go. <laughs> I thought, you know, you, now you, you say you're not, you're not a comedian who, who's like a stand-up who has a, 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 a set, a, a, a set uh, routine, but you work off the audience, now, if, which is the what, hardest thing to do here. I, I, it's phenomenal. That's a great observation on your part. Uh, for my whole, um, well, for for. for Conversation sake, we're going to call it a career. Okay. For my career, uh, I, I would do. Uh, I would start as a folk singer, and I would I would do long parodies, and and I would do, be on stage. By the way, I'd be on stage for four hours a night. I would never take a break because, in my mind, I was opening for myself. And if I took a break, I'd have to start all over again to get everybody involved back on me because I didn't start out in comedy clubs. I worked. Uh, what they call cheater lounges and they a cheater lounge is basically that lounge where uh, the guy goes with his girlfriend and uh, not to build not so he won't be seen it's a dark environment but my my thought was to uh, entertain these people for the whole night and also keep them out of bed keep them in the club and out of bed is that it Keep, keep them from cheating keep them in the club all night so they don't have time to cheat well, it was on a rotating scale. 
She, she oh. would say, I ring a bell, and then there would be another one. I ring a bell, another <laughs> one. It, it, it was planned. It was very well organized. Yeah. But what I what I didn't understand at the time was that you you shouldn't be spotlighting these people because in in very early in my uh, performing, I would take out a flashlight and go around the room and see who's in the room, and I would kibitz with them, and I would do stuff with them, and a lot of the cheaters quote didn't like that <laughs> for some reason uh, whatever reason that was my gosh yeah I I I, I, it, I liked performing I liked the the interaction with the people and I didn't have a set uh, show uh, where many of the comedians would do if uh, the wrote a B C D part of their act right until I went on to do cruise ships and once I started doing cruise ships I had to be time uh, oriented. I had to make sure I had a, a, a tight 20 or a tight 40, however they, they asked for. That's the only time I, I did that exact. And then now lately, I've been, when I've done comedy shows or worked uh, 55 and over communities, we have to have a, a, a set. And that doesn't really lend itself to uh, invo involving the audience uh, on a repartee with them. Interesting. Uh, when you first started out, uh, let me go back to one thing you had said a, l a few minutes ago was that uh, you were doing song parodies. Now, what was the first song parody that you wrote? Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. She does dirty things for just a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I, because, because a year ago, I wrote, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely walker. Oh, Chromed out handles and a little horn. Uh, it, it's a cute little song. I'd love to play it for you. This is not the time. <laughs> I love parodies. I absolutely love parodies. Uh, well, well, people I, remember the songs. They remember the original songs. Now you're making fun of the original songs. People have a, 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 a way to focus on that because they know that it's familiar to them. That's what comedy really needs, something that's either familiar or re relates right to them. So when you do something that, uh, when you're ad-libbing off of an audience, first of all, stand-up comedy, I think, is, is pretty much the hardest job in show business, besides memorization. And, uh, and, and working ad-lib is even harder than that, in my mind. You know, I, now you've watched uh, the improv shows, and, I, and you might have seen they have local improv. And when I would book a comedian to work a, a particular room I was booking, uh, uh, the, he said he was a, a writer for an improv group. Oh, and I, <laughs> Come on. About calling yourself a writer for an improv group. You, you get where I'm going with uh, this? Yeah, he, he didn't know what he was talking about. How do you write? How do you write improv? No, I mean, that's off the I, top of your head. <laughs> one, one would think, one would think, I, I came across a lot of people uh, in, in in my career, and I, I was very lucky to meet and and form uh, formulate what's the right way to perform, what's the wrong way to perform. And we talked about uh, you and I in, in private. We talked about the uh, language use of language. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was an article I read many years ago. Uh, a guy had gone through um, the entire country, comedy club after comedy club after comedy club, and one of the first things he came out with was with uh, he was tired of hearing comedians fighting the fight that Lenny Bruce already had won. Hmm. 
totally abusing that right, that privilege of language. When Lenny did that, he he used it to uh, to to point out the ills of society, and and he did it masterfully. Yes, he was making a point exactly. Whereas now it becomes abusive, and if it's if it's impactful, use it. But you can't abuse it. That and that maybe that's just old man old man saying that kind of stuff. But I like watching the old um, roasts, the Dean Martin roasts. Oh you see yeah. How craft, how word crafty these guys were. They could they turned a, they turned a phrase, and they made their point without using the uh, profane language in my mind. They used everything around them. They had the perfect timing from years uh, on stage. Uh, they they knew their audience. They knew the people they were talking about, and that's what made it so special. And now it becomes a, a session of can you top this? Where I can be more gross than you can, and I can talk about body parts, and I can talk about uh, excrements, and I can talk about all this stuff. And and because if you don't get it, I know this stuff is funny. That's that's one of my favorite lines when comedians talk about. I know this is that's a funny line. You didn't get it. I I, I don't know. Oh, wrong! I, I, you can get beat up after the after the night uh, outside for that. Well. That happened. I, 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 I actually happened to me in my nightclub at Bojangles. I, uh, I, I pissed off a guy so much, really. You didn't uh, mean to. He wasn't getting. He wasn't getting me at all. And uh, I came out, and um, the back window of my car was shot out. Oh. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's the closest I've ever come uh, to having any kind of a real danger. Although my first job was interesting. My first job was very interesting. Did you ever work in New York? Um, work there. Yes, yes, in Manhattan. Manhattan, because I, I was, my first gig performing was in Staten Island, where I'm from. And uh, the guy's name was Johnny Strotz, and he owned a club called uh, The Red Barrel. And he said to me, uh, listen, kid, because back then I was a kid, he said, don't let anybody give you any nonsense. And he takes out his 45. He says, if anybody gives you any nonsense, this gun could put a hole in the engine of a car. And I said, first thing I said to him was, are there any songs you don't want to hear? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you don't want to piss that guy off. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad he had my back. I didn't want a gun in it. Yeah, really? Uh, that was, and that was my first experience in a nightclub. And now my father, who sees me, Perform for the first time in a, in a real in a nightclub. He comes up to me and gives me this words of encouragement. He says, "You don't expect to do this for the rest of your life, do you?" <laughs> very, so he loved the material. <laughs> you know, a, a family will okay get a real job. Okay, you know, you could do something at night, but do something during the day that's you know work in an office. Or, that rest of my life. At that time, I just wanted. To, I knew twenty songs. All I wanted to do was get laid. I mean, that, that's what I was trying. To, that's well, all I wanted. New girls. Well, that, I didn't. I'm really talking about career. Way ahead of me. Way ahead of me. Twenty songs uh, is definitely the threshold for getting laid. <laughs> definitely, you well, you made a good. You made you, of, yes. What is the number? Because I'm, I, I'm, still, I'm, I'm, I'm on 18, 19. I don't know, 22, maybe. I, I thought it was around 20. 
Oh, you know, that's my phone going off. You know, I, I had interviewed Lewis Black some years ago. And after the interview, I said, Lewis, if you like, did you like the interview? He said, yeah. I said, do me a favor, record a phone message for me. So he goes, I, I said, just say, Buzz and Kathy aren't here right now. And then anything else you want. And he, he went into kind of a scathing thing, you know, about calling us and, 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 and don't bother them. And what's wrong with you? Come on, they're on their way up. You know, and people hang up all the time. And people who know us say, who's that guy that was answering your phone? You know, and if you don't know Lewis Black, uh, his voice is very uh, oh, relatable, bro. you know. You know who gosh, he is. Yeah. But. So that's, uh, that was fun. That was fun. That is a great call. I love, I, I love, I happen to love Lewis Black. I think he's fantastic. He's wonderful. Tell me about when you first, you, you said about what your dad saw your act. When you first went up on stage and you had uh, your act kind of written out, right? Because it wasn't going to be uh, uh, ad lib type of thing, but you had things that you that you wanted to. How do you rate your act when you first started out there? What was your opening? Do you remember? Basically, my whole my whole life as as a teenager was with my buddies. We would be we we my mom uh, when we talked about learning an instrument, she said play. I said, Mom, how about I learn to play the piano? She said, if you go to a party, they may not always have a piano there. If you go bring your guitar to a party, you'll always have that to entertain the people. Ooh. That's what my, I'm 15, 16, 17 years old, she's, t she's telling me. That was great and advice. Great advice. And I took that and, and, and I literally, I, I took my guitar everywhere. We, my buddies and I, we all would do sing-alongs, and we'd go on the LI, uh, Long Island Railroad, and we'd sing on the railroad, we'd sing on the ferry, we'd sing every and old folk music and uh, kumbaya kind of stuff. Nothing, no hard rock back then at all. And uh, that's, he wants me to rate my show. It, it, all of that kind of was a preparation for my being on stage. I never interacted with the audience at that time. I just had a song list, like you mentioned, I, I had a song list. I, I, once I got to 20, I went back to one. <laughs> right, and you figured that a lot of people would leave and more people would come in. That's what that's what I discovered. It was also by accident. There's no, you know, there's no book on how to be uh, a folk singer. And in, 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 what was that? Nineteen seven sixty eight. So wow, nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine. Yeah, I started doing that, and and then I I. I I always played the guitar. I always, I always, that, that jokes. I didn't do jokes. Although I, back then, I was loving Louis Nye and I was loving uh, Steve Allen and I was loving Johnny Carson and I was loving that kind of uh, comedian and that that kind of delivery. I, I really, I, oh, the two thousand year old man, uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. Oh yeah. Big on my on my sense of humor or lack thereof, depending on your your taste. Well, it has it has made a career for you. Let me uh, let me ask you about. Uh, I ask uh, singer songwriters about what their favorite guitar is. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, um, I, and I I started playing a, you know, a K guitar, K A Y, we had F holes, and uh, the, the the fingering. For those of you who don't understand, the the distance between the strings and the frets is the the slower it is, the better it sounds, the better it plays easier it is to play well that i, I it might became uh, on the road an ovation i love the ovation guitar because it's it, a glenn campbell 
played ovation guitar. I was a big fan of playing Campbell's back then. He introduced it really to the, the world. And to me, it stayed, it's very important because I was on stage four hours a night. It stayed in tune. That And I, I really like that aspect of that guitar for me. Sure, and it was um, it was like an amalgamation, not not wood, so you could take right. it anywhere and not worry about it getting too hot or too cold. Very good observation because in, in, in from my well, for many years, I would work Cape Cod in the summer and Aspen in the winter, and two di- two to your point, two different climates that really uh, could ruin a guitar. But uh, I, I, it stayed well for me. It stayed tuned and. Uh, when the old joke is I bought it tuned, I assume it's going to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure we've all got stories about tuning and breaking strings and about guitars on stage. Um, That's that, my performance guitar. Now, personally, I have a, a, a Gibson uh, that is a beautiful a sunbird, the um, sun, Songbird. Oh, that, Songbird, yeah. Yeah, just a beautiful inlay of, of, of uh, ivory and, and the... the, the Fret pick the flat. I'm sorry. The fret plate is a beautiful uh, songbird, and it's the, the sunburst color. It, it, that's my favorite at home guitar to play. That's a nice guitar. So when you um, when you first went on stage in uh, Staten Island, you had worked prior to that. Uh, you had uh, you had said that to uh, you held cue cards at the Ed Sullivan show. Tell us about how you got involved in that. Timeline wise, it was after. So. I I, uh, I got the gig while I was in college. I, I was in college. I was on stage longer than I was in college. Yes, I, was, <laughs> I did. I did about an hour and a half of college. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I got drafted. I got drafted, and uh, they didn't take me. I went draft. I got drafted twice. I failed the physical twice, and then I had to get a, a job. And I looked in the paper that they were advertising for a page to. Uh, usher people into the theater for Ed Sullivan, Merv Griffin, What's My Line, To Tell the Truth, etc. And uh, through my experience, I worked for them for almost two years. And what a great experience that was to, to actually meet. It certainly didn't become my friends. I was the gopher. I got cigarettes. I got sandwiches at the at the deli. I, I got newspapers. That, that was my, my job. Okay, but you I, were on the inside there. You were on the inside, so... So uh, one aspect of this show is uh, we we talk about the backstory. What what's some of the backstories of the stars that you met there? People, Buzz. I got to say, every single one of those people I met, including Ed Sullivan, they were all wonderful. Again, not they were polite. They, if I held the door, they said thank you. If I brought them something, they say thank you. They, they all of that except for one person. One person was my. Uh, I was so disappointed in him because I was a fan of his. Oh, Jerry, Jerry Lewis. Jerry. Yeah, I'm at the Merv Griffin show. My job is to take the talent. At the time, it was Jerry Lewis. Usher him to the stage door entrance, and he's then I'll meet another page, and that page will take him then to his dressing room. So all I had to do is, "Hello, Mr. Lewis. Thank you for coming to the Merv Griffin show. This way, please, to the stage door." That was it. He is an entourage of four or five, six people. So now we, we, I'm ushering them to the entrance of the stage door. As we're at the stage door entrance, some kids had opened up the fire escape uh, above us from the theater and started yelling out, Oh, Jerry Lewis, we love you. Jerry Lewis, we love you. 
he literally steps out of the stage door entrance, walks up to the kids, points his fingers at them, and says, "Get inside! You're not supposed to be up in there. Get inside now!" <laughs> now wait a minute. Then he puts a finger on my chest, points to my chest. That's what you were supposed to do. Oh. And he, and that was it. The man took his time to get out of the entrance of the building to yell at the kids and tell me that that was my job. That he, was important. He did your job. He did my job. He did your I job. Should... Jerry Lewis did your job. Why me? Oh, Dean, no. <laughs> but the only jerk, he was the only jerk I met. I was I was in the, uh, you have time for another story? Absolutely. Okay. So here I am, and God's honest truth, I'm, uh, the second, um, the, the second moonwalk. My job again is to get coffee for everybody, and pages. Uh, we, we stayed overnight. We were going to help uh, in the control room. I'm standing in case the director or, or these or assistant director or anyone in the room needed coffee or something and paper, or whatever. I was to get that. That was my job. Right. Now we're watching all the screens and and, and the, the, the the wonderful. Uh, CBS anchor of, of, of all time. Who's that? Uh, Walter Cronkite? Walter Cronkite is in the Walter other room. Cronkite speaking. <laughs> very good, very good. This so, um, is Walter Cronkite. This was, if you remember, this was the moonwalk where the astronaut put a golf ball down and, and had a makeshift um, uh, a golf club. Yeah. And he hit, hit the golf ball. And I say uncontrollably i just blurted out that's the biggest sand trap i've ever seen in my life <laughs> the director goes walter that's the biggest sand trap you've ever seen in your life walter cronkite says wow folks that's the biggest sand trap i've ever seen in my life oh my god wow. i i i'm in my mind i am dancing how did I, you oh my god yeah I mean, there it was. Walter Cronkite. Technically, that was my first stolen joke. Well, you, you could say you wrote for Walter Cronkite, but like, what, what, you know, what did you write for Walter Cronkite? He was a newsreader. There was an accident at the corner of Wilton and Forest today. Uh, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. That was that was a real exciting time during the, the my tenure there. I got to work the Macy's Day Parade. Had to be there four or five, six o'clock in the morning to usher people into that had tickets for the Macy's Day Parade and things like that. And, and uh, to have to have, oh, I got in trouble with the uh, the Everly Brothers. I almost got fired for the Everly Brothers. Oh, do tell. So back then they had something called Dial a Prayer. Were you ever familiar with dial a prayer? Yes, I, I knew what it was. I never had to use it, thank goodness. Okay. I'm very yes, grateful. Sir. Here I am. I, I, I call, I call um, dial a prayer because I had gotten to be a little friendly with the, the guys during the rehearsals. And I say, uh, Mr. Everly, uh, Phil, this is this a phone call for you. And he thinks it's hysterical. He says, do this to my brother. So I call, Don, the phone call for you. And it's dial a prayer. So now they got two dollar prayer. Now the two of them think this is hysterical. They think to me, tell our manager. You got to tell our manager this, okay? So I say, right, Mr. Jones, over here, please. There's a phone call for you. He slams the phone down says, what's your name? Who's your boy? <laughs> and I look to the side looking for the cavalry to come. Yeah. And Don 
Phil are hysterical laughing because they know this girl is a jerk. Don't. They, they're, they're not coming to my rescue. And they, they, they call my supervisor. The supervisor comes up to my to the desk where I was standing. And the Everly brothers finally come up. They go, no, we had him do it. It was all us. We, and I, I, they saved my life, actually. But that was, that was a little scary for a short time. The Everly Brothers saved my life, and I wrote a joke for Walter Cronkite. That would be the name of your book. I got one more, one more if you got a time. Dude, we got plenty of time here. You remember Ed Sullivan's show used to do a, um, a tribute to National Day. The UN was having some sort of celebration, and uh, uh, some sort of anniversary, and they would bring in dancers from all over the world, and they uh, they had like uh, twenty. Uh, female Russian dancers and uh, they told me uh, that we need 20 uh, folding chairs. Remember those big uh, wrought iron uh, folding chairs that are very heavy? Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a young kid. I'm 20, 21 years old and I I have two on one arm, two on the other arm and I'm carrying them into the, into the um, dressing room and when I get to the dressing room there are semi- and naked women. All, all, all those women are there. For the next fourteen chairs, sixteen chairs, I brought one at a time. One at a time. <laughs> one at a time. It took me a long time to bring those twenty chairs. It could have taken me three or four moves, but I decided it might be better if I just did one at a time. <laughs> I'm, I'm so weak. <laughs> oh my, that's oh boy. Uh, you know, at that age, at 20, 21, you got all the testosterone you need. Oh, my God. And it's overflowing. How did you get through the door? Well, never mind. Okay. <laughs> so now you, uh, you you worked for uh, What's My Line to Tell the Truth, Carol Burnett Show. Any any uh, backstories from the Carol Burnett Show? Okay. So there, uh, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a dual story. Uh, two for one. Yeah. My, uh, I, I was chosen out of all the pages to be the, because the, the Carol Burnett show was done in California, but Carol Burnett and Julie Andrews was going to do a special at, at Lincoln Center, and um, I, I got the call to be the, um, you, now they've, they've got the people, they don't even probably do this anymore, but they would have somebody lead the applause for the audience. Right. You know, applause sign, and, they, and, and guys... We'd make fun of it, call it applesauce. No, it's applause. When, when you see that like on, you all applaud. So now I've got the headphones on from the director, and I'm cueing the audience for applause, and then I put my hands down, and I was, they were told, you know, watch this guy. When he has his hands up, then you applaud. When he puts it down, then you stop the applaud. All right, so that's my gig. My mother's in the audience, and she's sitting next to another woman, and, and she's seeing this kid with the hands up and the hands down. She said, that's my son. Yeah. And the other says, oh, really, my, my, my son is the orchestra leader uh, over here. So the two mothers are, are, are very proud of their sons. Okay. Yeah. That was a fun gig. I, I got to meet all the all the people on, on uh, the Carol the, uh, Burnett show. The next day or two, I am her escort at Lincoln Center. My job is to usher, usher my friend and I, uh, another page, our job was to usher them from their dressing room onto the stage at Lincoln Center. Wow. We had up the elevator, and so here we are. Again, very, very cool, because we've got to be professional and don't want to get in trouble. Right. And it, you remember the, the, the character was always the same. 
uh, Julie Andrews was the ingenue, and uh, Carol Grant was the old hag who was no longer uh, going to be uh, revelant uh, in, in, in this country, in, in, in show business. Right. Now, both, they're both um, princesses of sorts. So, Carol Grant has a, a, a costume where her boobs are down by her, her stomach, and Carol and, and Julie Andrews has hers all fluffed up and coming out of her dress. And Carol, as with four of us are in the elevator, her escort, my, my, me and uh, my friend's escort, Carol Burnett, Julie Andrews, my buddy. And Carol Burnett says to us, look at this, with the points to Julie Andrews, we got Mary Poppins out. She was in her costume. And she called Mary Poppins out. Oh, terrific. I mean, that's the stuff. I, I treasure stuff like that. Oh. Treasure, and I, my first, 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 first assignment with the CBS. I there's a show they used to have in New York called Dial M for Music, where they would have live jazz every Sunday morning, early nine o'clock Sunday morning. They have live jazz. Now my job was to take again the talent from the street up to the studio, get them coffee, paper, whatever. The guy I met for my first first gig, I met, I I, I was assigned to, was Louis Armstrong. Oh. Yeah, wow. I mean, come on! I'm taking Louis Armstrong up for the elevator. Anything I can get you, sir? Yeah, could you get me a newspaper? I got to get him a newspaper. I got whatever he wanted. So I, I got to, you know, be in the same environment as as Louis Armstrong. I mean, you can't, you can't make that stuff up. Tremendous. Yeah, Tremendous. wonderful stuff. Wonderful. You know, in speaking of what's my life to tell the truth, remember some of the panelists. Snoopy Sales is one on that show. Right. Yeah, he he did those. Yeah. Yeah, and it was that was exciting to to do that, and I had a wonderful time there. And then I, after that, I, that's when I started. Before I, I knew I wanted to do something in in show business. I thought it'd be musical comedy. I didn't necessarily think about doing the, the guitar. Uh, for a living until I went to Cape Cod and I went up there and, and by accident I got an audition for would you get that please yeah uh, yeah I, I, I let it let it because I want to hear Lewis Black <laughs> I'll play I'll play the Lewis Black thing after the show okay fine with me okay. so I got I got I got a gig in Cape Cod and I I, 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 did, I didn't have a uh, a clue about how I was going to go. I, I didn't even have a mic. Didn't they? They didn't have a, a amplifier. One of the acts that they had that year took pity on me, gave me a mic, mic stand, and an amplifier. My guitar and my voice went through the uh, the mic. Uh, I'm sorry, went through the amplifier, and that's my that was my very first performing adventure. Uh, I left a three hundred dollar a week job for a hundred dollars a week in Cape Cod. And I was, I was, I couldn't have been happier. Could not have been happier in Cape Cod. That's that's no. the key. You want you want to be happy in what you do. You uh, you played in uh, places in in uh, major cities around the country, uh, and then you had come down to uh, South Florida. Uh, yeah, you know, I challenged myself back then. I was ballsy. I had I challenged myself. I I left the Cape. Uh, went to Connecticut to work at Chuck Steakhouse. There, there was a a plethora of them down here in South Florida, truck steakhouses. And then I asked the guys, you know, I was kind of uh, feeling good. 
I'd like to work in LA. You have any connections there? They said, yeah, friends of ours own a place called Scotch and Sirloin. So I went out on no job. I stayed with one of my friends who was a page who's now he was working for the Merv Griffin show. And I, I, I stayed at his place, borrowed his car, went to the audition. And uh, they said, all right, we, we have a place in, in Woodland Hills, California. And this is 1972. Okay. So I'm 1972. I'm in, I'm in there in a uh, uh, lounge, uh, Chuck State, uh, uh, Scotch and Starling, uh, where uh, they announced the Johnson party of four, your table's ready. You know, and now I'm, I'm in that room. You've, you've been in those rooms. Yeah. And probably performed in those rooms. So here I am. Unbeknownst to me, they, they would announce, however, my sound system was connected to the address system, uh, Johnson party of four. Your table's ready. So I'm saying country roads, and then all of a sudden nothing. And then clicks back on. There was a place I belong. So I would lose my sound. I lose my voice. I lose my guitar because the person at the, the hostess was announcing who's next to have their di- dinner ready. Now, I go up to her on my break and I say, listen, could you do me a big favor? My songs take about three minutes. Could you just wait to the end of the song and then make the announcement? And, and she's and she gives me the look. Okay. So now, uh, country rules, take me home. Johnson, party of four, your table's ready. Okay, now I'm pissed. I get my son back on, and I'll remember, this is 1972, Southern California. Okay? Right. All right. Uh, she cuts me off. I get the mic and sound back on. I say, Manson, party of 12, your table's ready. Manson. Party of twelve. Oh Jesus! And I didn't get fired. <laughs> Did anybody laugh? Yeah, well, the faces. It was like it was it was like whiplash on the necks of everybody. <laughs> they looked up like like that scene in the producers when when Hitler came out on the stage and springtime. He started singing "Springtime for Hitler," and all the Nazis came out and people in the audience mouths agape. <laughs> You know, I, that's a great analogy because that was that was the closest. If I could paint a picture, that would be it. <laughs> People with their mouths open say, "What the hell did he just say?" Plus, we didn't get fired, and, and for some reason, they, I was doing okay. They liked what I was doing. But again, I was interacting with the audience doing sing-alongs. I wasn't doing really comedy, and I certainly didn't think that was comedy. I was just pissed. They forgot I was from New York. You know, as how you doing? Yeah, uh, yeah, how you doing? Yeah. So that, that, was, that was my uh, my fun adventure in uh, there. And you mentioned different clubs that, or different places I worked. For. Yes, I was in uh, I worked in the state of Washington. I worked in uh, California, up and down the coast of California. I worked in uh, I actually was in Las Vegas, uh, and I got a gig at the college, the UNLV, and that that was a nice thing to do. And then uh, I, I worked in Aspen for the summertime and, and winter. Sorry. Wintertime in Aspen, summertime in Cape Cod, and I would uh, be back and forth, and then I started working on ships. So right after, uh, and you'll remember this, yeah. in, in uh, Aspen, the, this particular year I was working, uh, I had a group from Fort Lauderdale, and the group came in, and they were so frustrated because there was very little snow. That particular time of the year, there was very little snow in, in Aspen. And they were a little bit upset because they showed me the headlines of the newspaper. That's the year it snowed in Fort Lauderdale. Oh, yeah. I remember okay. that. 
Yeah. So they we started talking. They told me you're going to come to South Florida. There's a lot of entertainment, and one of the guys is fantastic. His name is John Day. I said, okay, John Day. Okay, I, I'll go see. So I, I finished my season there. I drive down to South Florida. I see John Day performing at Chuck's Steakhouse on 17th Street, and I say, he's a great singer, handsome guy, but he doesn't interact with the audience. He doesn't really do anything, anything like I do. Mm. And I, I, I go to the manager. I said, listen, I. I see the guy up on the stage. I'd like to audition for you. He said, are you Gene Marola? What? He says, yeah, I was a waiter at Chuck's Steakhouse in Connecticut, and you were performing there. We, you don't have to audition. We're going to hire you. Oh, my goodness. That, was, that new, was pretty yeah. cool. How about that? So we, wow. we, have a, we have a new place in uh, Plantation, Florida. Back then, 441 was the end of the world, if, if you remember that. 440, are you kidding? Anything out in 441 was the sticks. Oh, it was the Everglades. So the springtime comes, and I, I, and I, uh, I finished my gig in Aspen again, and I call up Billy and I said, all right, uh, his name, the manager's name is Billy Lasher. I said, Billy, uh, I'm ready to move into uh, your, your club and your restaurant, uh, like we talked about. He said, yeah, you know, the owner, Paul, He's, he likes the entertainment we have, and you, you know, he doesn't want you to come down and audition. I said, listen, I'll pay for myself. I'll pay for the airplane, uh, car, whatever it is. I'll pay for the, all that. And you just, if you like it, you reimburse me. If you don't like it, no no harm, no foul. He said, okay, let me present it to the owner. The owner said, okay. I come down and called all the friends I had in Fort Lauderdale. They, uh, they gave me a two-night audition. It did very, very well the first night. The second night, even better than that. Oh. And I'm psyched and I'm pumped. And I said, well, Billy, what do you think? And I said, well, you were terrific. Thank you very much. But the owner didn't like you. Oh. Well, the owner didn't like you. Why not? He said, because you didn't finish any songs. Because he's used to John Day, the singing. Yeah. Oh, okay. And doing everything straight, and here I am. I'm getting everybody singing and dancing and having fun. He he didn't like that part of it. Billy eventually. This is a hell of a long story. I'm so sorry. Billy eventually uh, stops Paul and said, "Listen, give him a shot. They gave me a, a couple of nights a week." All right now, John Day, this guy Paul Proffer, the owner of Chuck Steakhouse, and I, and one other friend, George Robot, we all became partners in Bojangles a year later. Bojangles is the club that you headlined for six years. Yes. Tell us yes. about how it was. How what what was it like? And every every day you had to go there for three four hours, make people laugh. What 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 was it like for you? I never you know I never thought it would end. I, that's got to be the, the opening line to this conversation. Yeah. I never thought it was going to end, Buzz. I really thought here, here I am. Uh, I'm in Fort Lauderdale. The room sat. Buzz, it sat 300 people. It's mm, a big five, room. 500 people through the door every weekend night, and we would have a couple of hundred during the week. That was it. Uh, we opened up in November 1st, 1978, and we had incredible crowds throughout the stay there. Towards the end of the uh, of this of my uh, performing there, I kind of got burned out. I was only there. We were doing okay on the weekends, and not really good business during the week. I just it just ran its pace. If you can imagine one guy on stage for uh, five or six years, five four or five hours a night, uh, doing whatever I was doing, and there 
I did a lot of audience participation. I brought people up on stage and people, for instance, if you came with your wife and, uh, and I, I was doing something that you enjoyed, then you would bring another couple in to see me. And instead of watching me, you're watching their reaction to me. And it would, it would, that's how it grew. It grew exactly like that. And I have to tell you an inside story. You like inside yeah. stories. Oh, yeah. My nice uh, got to the Bojangles when we were framing it. And we see where the stage is going to go. We see where the bars are going to go. We see the tables and chairs, all that. And the guys looked around. I swear this is what they said. We made it too big. They were worried that we wouldn't be able to fill it. And we did, damn it. We, we, we did. A, I was very proud of that. Very, very proud of the associate. I had the perfect uh, partnership. I had uh, John Day, who's loved by everybody. Great, great uh, lover of music and art. And, and he had a nice following. And then the Chuck Steakhouse guy, uh, Paul Proffer, he had established a, a credibility throughout. And the guy I got was uh, George Robot, who's a, a nightclub owner from Cape Cod who I started to work for my, my first gig up in up in uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts so it, it became such a love fest, everybody had their assignment and, and you know to your point, my job was only, and to, to me it was very easy, all I had to do was get there at 8 o'clock, set up and perform till 1 o'clock in the morning and then go home and that, it was just easy I mean, I just never thought it was going to stop. I never thought it was going to stop. Did that frankly. get easier for you as it went along? You know, um, I, I, I evolved because now I started doing more comedy. I, 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 now I was being billed as a comedian. And I know you had been an interview in, in, the, in the tank for uh, Woody Woodbury. Yeah. And I was very, very flattered that uh, Ray Retchie, a, a columnist for the Sun Sentinel, uh, compared me to Ray Rich, I'm sorry, to, to Woody Woodbury. And I, that was the, uh, uh, he was like a god to me. He's an incredible performer. And the the whole thing with Fort Lauderdale back then, there was uh, probably 20 acts you could go see as there were quality acts, really, really good. The, the Mark and Clark uh, Twin Pianos and, and uh, Kenny Martell, all these people were fantastic performers and uh, great shows going on. There was jazz clubs, Bubba's uh, Jazz Club, uh, uh, Bachelors 3 was around. So there's so many good clubs to go to. It, it, that and, was the heyday, the heyday of, uh, of uh, live performance uh, over there. But in, in addition to that, Gene, you've been a, a, a longtime supporter of, uh, of local charities like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, uh, Kids in Distress, the Junior League in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, tell us about your uh, association with uh, with fundraising and, uh, and working with those groups. Well, thank you for bringing that up because I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, uh, who was the chapter uh, president of the Big Brothers Big Sisters down here in South Florida, he was, he was the, the go-to guy. He came in to Bojangles and enjoyed my show, and he brought it up to his committee and said, I think this guy would do great with the kids. And they said, do you see his show? Do you see what he's doing up there? And it was back then, and, and you, you know this, the, the, uh, the, uh, the politically correct police didn't exist. Right. Back. So it was, it was, it was what was funny back then probably wouldn't go over right now. Uh, but it did back then. And, and he, 
took a shot, rolled the dice. His name was Phil Sanfilippo. And Phil said, Gene, uh, we're doing a show at the Diplomat, and uh, we'd like to have you uh, host and entertain the kids along with Melissa Manchester. Okay, I did that one year. And Ben Vereen the next year. The Spinners another year. And I can't remember all the other people we had. We did a great uh, 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 fundraiser for them. We did bowling events. We did with Rick Shaw, God bless him. Uh, uh, We did uh, stuff for uh, the Yankees. I did uh, Alzheimer's uh, help with the Yankees. I did hosted shows for them. So whenever I can do, I I do VA uh, shows. Whenever I can do stuff like that, I'm very, very flattered that I'm asked and very happy to uh, donate my time for those people. Let me ask you about when you were uh, first getting to entertain for the kids at Big Brothers Big Sisters. That's a whole different audience for a comedian as opposed to adults. But how did your material change or did you change your material? Or did you add songs like regular songs or how did you well, do that? Remember now, I had my, my folk days. so. I, would, I could do the uh, Puff the Magic Dragon for the kids. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I, would, I would work on that. And uh, the, uh, one of the things I did, I, I, did, I did an improv to uh, the 12 Days of Christmas. And I would have the kids act out uh, the, each one of the 12 days. And I brought the 12 kids on stage, and they, one was a, a, a piper piping and a, somebody doing this. And I made up the gyrations that they would do. And that became a hit because now all of a sudden the kids have to pay attention uh, to what's going on. They, they, when their turn came, they, they were 12, 11, and they, they had to do it quickly in unison. But it, they, they laughed as hard as the audience did because they were involved with it. it and it wasn't over their head. And I don't, by the way, I never, in my mind, and hopefully never spoke down to them. I never spoke to them like uh, they didn't comprehend. I've, I mean, my uh, my experience with kids is they understand a lot more than they can express. They do. Children can be a brutal audience because they're very, very alert and and uh, they they uh, they're going to tell you the truth right away. Very much so, and, yeah. and I, I I I appreciate that and I applaud that. And I think the more respect you show people in general, uh, the the better you, you you'll do. And that's yeah. that's another thing. I, I I can I thank my parents for that. They they always be polite, and uh, I, I think also stand up for yourself too. You can't in, in comedy clubs it can be brutal if you if you let the uh, the heckler take over. Uh, you, you, then you've lost it. You do not have a chance. And at Bojangles, I would get notes. Uh, that was one of the th- favorite things. People would send me notes on the napkins. Yeah. Uh, one would say, my friend uh, is funnier than you are. And <laughs> okay, well, where's your friend? Okay, James? yeah. Let's, let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's come on. Would you like out. to come up here and do 30 seconds or a minute? Come on, you know. So now, of course, he might be, he might be hysterically funny at the office, and I don't doubt that he is. But you get on stage, you have lights, you have people looking at you, you have you have a microphone. I said, listen, I think you are probably going to take over my job someday. But why don't you get a head start? Come on up here now. And the kid was panicked. I, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. Oh. But it, 
it was hysterical uh, at his expense, unfortunately. Yeah, you don't want comedy to be at someone else's expense. It's got to be at your expense, and people have to know that. When you make fun of yourself, yeah, uh, that that's the key. You, you don't want to get, get down on other people. The audience doesn't like that. Well, Unless, yeah, and you have to be careful, and hecklers in particular, if, if there's a heckler in the front row and the people in the back row don't hear what he said or she said, then you look like you're picking on that person. So the, my rule of thumb is repeat what that person said. Right. And that gives you at least an even uh, keel to now, if you do say something back at that person, the audience understands what you're saying and why you're saying it. So if you don't repeat that, it, 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 you're just lost. It, it, it's not comfortable to do that. Tell me, tell me about the what is arguably the most important part of a comedian's set is when the comedian first gets up in front of an audience uh, and, and that first 30 seconds, how do you uh, set, set the stage? How do you uh, let people know that they're in for a great time? What are the few things that maybe you say each time just to get them going and let them know they're going to have a great time that day? Well, I, I've learned this over the years. It's, it's, it's how you're set up how you are uh, introduced. I write my own introduction, okay? I have the MC uh, announce, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to bring you a gentleman who's worked with uh, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Larry the Cable Guy, and Carrot Top. He's the best comedian in our price range. <laughs> That's good. That's well, good. I get up on stage and I can feign being insulted you know, and I now and the audience is already like they, there's already a laugh, but and uh, many times the audience are, uh, are they know the MC, because yeah. they're regulars at their show, regulars at the at the community center, whatever they the and, and the MC loves it because they don't, they don't usually get laughs, right? Right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy Sheldon who came from us. And they, they do that, but now they read, and now and you should see their faces when they get a big laugh. Now I hit the stage running, Buzz. It's it, it eliminates any kind of uh, makeup time. Now I don't have to uh, do anything that's going to be uh, crazy and and, and 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 throw dice. It's like a pre-comedy and, thing that you're giving them. Yeah. I, I, my, another introduction I have is this gentleman who worked for all these people and his comedy is nothing to laugh at. <laughs> and, and then the people do the head quirk and quirk their heads. So, again, I, I think the introduction is very, very, very important. Uh, on occasion, I'll say to the audience, listen, we're recording tonight. Do me a big, big favor. Um, we have to know sound levels. So, at the count of three, give me the biggest laugh you could come up with, so that we'll I'll know what my goal is to make you laugh at that. And they they do that, and again it loosens them up. I'm I'm not telling jokes, but in, in kind of through the back door, I'm getting them loosened up. Well, you you loosened up everybody because you were voted South Florida favorite comedian a few years ago, just three years ago. Fantastic, that's great. And, and that coming from a job, you said you used to be a proofreader for M&M's. Um, that must have been a great job because you didn't really have to know a lot. One of your other jokes that I really love is 
Uh, yeah, we're reaching that age. I, I make love with a defi- defibrillator now. Oh, or I, a defibrillator around me or something like that. It just Is this There's true? Is this true, Gene? My Come on. Word. Tell me this is uh, true. My favorite word is clear. Clear. <laughs> Not is that clear, but would you would you get your hands off his chest so we, the guy could live? Yeah. What? So you know, we we've got a few more moments here. Is there is there anything that you'd like people to know about you? That I mean, your whole life is out there. We in South Florida know who you are, and we've we've heard you and listened to you. We love you. Tell us about something about you that people do not normally know. Well, this is this is a, a fairly new incident for me, and I'm very proud of this. Uh, I, I technically I had nothing to do with it. it sounds like a joke. This this sounds like you're 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 gearing me for a joke here. No, no. This is a this is a love thing. This oh, is a love oh, thing. okay. Two and a half years ago, my uh, about just two years ago, my wife and I became grandparents for the first time. Wow. And yeah, at 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 that age, at seventy years old, to become a grandfather for the first time. And it's spectacular. And every every time, every month he gets older, and, and you know, with the pandemic now, can't can't be with him all the time. We want to, uh, but uh, we're very very proud of that. My son and my daughter in law are wonderful. Danny and, and Jenna, and our grandson Danny is wonderful. We we love him dearly. He loves grandpa, grandma, and he's very lucky. He's got three grandmothers and uh, one grandpa. So I'm his favorite grandpa. Wow. What do they call you? What does your grandson call you? Something like great, great. I, you know, we were toying with it with Grandpa, Grandpa Gino, Grandpa. I love Grandpa. Since I'm the only Grandpa, he's not going to be able to uh, get me, me, me mixed up with the other Grandma, the other Grandpas. Grandma, we have a Grandma, we have a Grand Grand, and we have a Nana. So the poor kid, he only has to memorize one name for me. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do anything else. But he's he's a he's a good athlete already. You can tell he's he's a good athlete, and uh, I can't wait to take him fishing and do all the things I do with my son. As a matter of fact, I said to my son, I said Dan, you know, you're going to be able to take uh, your son fishing and and, and golfing and uh, all the things we did together. He said, Dad, why don't you do that with him? I was okay. I'll take I'll like you. I'll take my walker and go and go <laughs> with, uh, running with him. Like, are you kidding? And run? Sure, I, I will do that. I, I will be happy to do that. Yes, that's that's a great part of life. T- tell us, tell us uh, where people can get a hold of you. It's Gene Marola M E R O L A dot com, right? Yes, yeah. that's my website, and uh, uh, I'm very very uh, happy with that. There's a lot of information on that. Uh, I, I, one of my big things in Fort Lauderdale I did back in 79, 80, I was on the front page of the show, Showtime. I was on Showtime front page. I mean, it, not a lot of people can uh, uh, have that in their column as, as uh, great things. I was very, uh, Fort Lauderdale has been such a great experience for me. I, had, I, I opened up. Uh, at the Sunrise Musical Theater, I opened them up for Paul and Oates and for uh, Spyro Gyra and uh, uh, just a bunch of uh, people. I, I, did, I toured with Spyro Gyra. I toured with uh, uh, Dave Mason. And it's such, it was such a wonderful experience to to be down here. And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank sure. all the people in South Florida for being so nice to me and helping me uh, uh, with uh, my, my uh, would-be career. Well, it is a career. 
we we enjoy that. We we love people who make us laugh in a good way, and you've been doing that for years and years. Uh, are you are you booked for anything? I know it's been so difficult for for entertainers in this last year. But do you have any bookings coming up? Yes, they, they, but unfortunately, they're all in private places. Uh-huh. Uh, it, we didn't tell the audience that you and I worked together one time. Well, yeah, we had a we had a, a uh, what was that C Bond commercial, that uh, national commercial, yeah. I know. I beg your pardon. It was an international commercial. By international. My friend. I didn't get paid for international. Wait a minute here. I know none of us, none of us did. This is a work to uh, a right to work state. Yeah, I got, I got. When that commercial broke, I had friends of mine since my from my uh, carnival cruise line experience performing at carnival. Uh, I, I had friends in England and in Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. Uh, they were sending me uh, the congratulatory mm. emails telling me. Congratulations! I'm glad your teeth gave out before your career did. <laughs> that was terrific. You know, I, I, I want to say I want to say thank you, Gene, for doing this today. Um, I, I want to tell all the listeners that Gene is just uh, a masterful ad lib uh, and, and musical comedian who has done so much to add to the quality of life here in South Florida and, and everywhere around the country where he's performed. And we certainly appreciate you being on the show today. So thank you so much, Gene. Buzz, thank you very much. And mazel tov to everybody. Thank you, brother. Talk to you soon. Thank you, everybody, for listening to On the Record and Off the Wall. This is Buzz Fleischman listening again in another two weeks. By the way, this show will uh, play one more time uh, on joltradio.org uh, on uh, January 11th. Let's see, that's the first time was the 4th, so it's 4 and 7. Yes, that's 11. So January 11th. And uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, this is Buzz Fleischman uh, signing off. We'll see you next time on the record and off the wall. <laughs>